Hi, everyone, and welcome back to How to College for First Gen, our podcast where we get together with fellow first gens to talk about their experience being first generation college students. Today's episode is super awesome because we'll get the opportunity to talk to one of our own board members here at HTC, Bird Williams. So I actually got to meet Bird when she came to do a virtual event at my entrepreneurship club in my business school, and I thought she was brilliant. She was working in New York as an investment banker and then came down to Houston to start her own business with her husband, and now she has a consulting business where she helps other folks follow their dreams and start their own businesses. On the side, she's also a podcaster, and that is why I originally reached out to her because I wanted to see if she was willing to share some insights on podcasting. The meeting was supposed to be 30 minutes, and she gave us a whole hour of her time to give us all the lessons learned from her experience in the podcasting world. This just shows you how generous she is with her knowledge and information. And I thought we have to ask her to be on our board. She's brilliant. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation we're about to have. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the show. Hi. We're so excited to have you on. First of all, you are a huge supporter of the show, and we thank you so much for that. At the very, very beginning, when we started thinking about this idea, I reached out to you on Instagram, and you replied right away, and you said, yes, I'm happy to chat with you all. So thank you so, so much for that. But please tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. It really is an honor to share. So my name is Ashley Bird Williams. I am from a smallish, well, it's it's Texas City, Texas. It's not huge, but I went to a really small high school. I graduated with 18 people in my senior class, and I went from there to the University of Texas at Austin. So it was a like a culture shock for sure. But I had to learn a lot. It was tough in the beginning, but as I really got into my business classes, I did a lot. I did very well. And I went on to going from the University of Texas to New York to work on Wall Street as an investment banking analyst. That was my first job out of college. I loved the rush and the energy and the vibe, but I wasn't fulfilled in what I was doing. And when I began to realize that, I didn't know what to do next. And that's kind of how I transitioned into entrepreneurship, realizing I want to help make a business run. I want to do the behind the scenes. So I left New York and came back to Houston where I married my college sweetheart and we launched our first business, which is the League Elite Training Facility, a circuit training warehouse gym here in Houston. That was in 2013. So here we are seven years later with 10 employees and the business has done very well, which is a huge blessing. And I have had so many people reach out saying, hey, I mean, I want to learn how to launch my business. I had this idea. It's a side hustle. I want to make it into a, a viable business. Can you help me? And so just last year, last November, I launched Bird Williams, which is where I can help businesses strategize through how to really help their business take flight. And so that's what I'm focused on now. We have a lot going on, my husband and I, in terms of our different entrepreneurial endeavors, but we really, really love what we get to do. So it's a blessing to share here. Like I said, well, I didn't mention this, but I was first generation college student. And the crazy thing is, it's not just my, my immediate family, but 
my dad actually has six siblings and they have multiple kids. I have tons of cousins, but I'm the first to graduate college on that entire side of my family. And I didn't really realize that until I was in college and it was like, whoa, you know, but it it was a a really cool honor to, to be able to do that for my family. So I'm excited to be here and to share with you and your listeners. No, thank you so much. And you gave us so much to unpack there. Let's begin with the last thing that you mentioned. At one moment, did you realize, wait a minute, I might be the only one on the whole side of the family to be here. And tell me about those feelings. What what was that like? Yes. Yeah, so I knew that there were people in my family who had gone to college, but it didn't really dawn on me that they never graduated, you know? And so I re- it was in college. I don't remember the exact moment. I just remember having the conversation and really hearing the the phrase first-generation college student and thinking, oh, is that me? And kind of doing some research and realizing, oh yeah, I totally am. I don't think I really realized it, you know, going into college because again, there were one there are people who had gone before me in my family who had gone, but when I was there, I realized, whoa. I am not only here about to graduate, but also there's been no one on my dad's entire side. What? It was really wild. Yeah, no, that sounds ludicrous. Like I still remember, and I also come from a big family. I have 50 cousins. And it's insane to know. And I guess that moment where you're like, oh, dang, I might be the first one. Oh, I am the first one. And then also the pressure that comes with that, right? Like if not me, then how many more generations are we going to have to wait? Did you experience that pressure at all? Yes, I did. And I guess I felt the pr- a little bit of the pressure even going in. You know, I knew neither of my parents had gone to college and they were really proud of me for going. I mean, there was so much as, you know, with that transition, like I said, going from 18, you know, a class of 18 in my senior class to tens of thousands at this university and all of the pressure. I, I remember this. So I remember I was in the business school and in one of our intro sessions in that first semester, they announced that there were 41 valedictorians in, in our class at UT, in our freshman class. And I I was valedictorian. And that to me up until that point had been like a badge of honor, which it should be. It was something I was proud of. But in that moment, I'm like, oh my goodness, everyone is a valedictorian here, you know? Like I realized that I was at this greater level of greatness and I was no longer the smart one. Like that that would stand out. I was among a lot of smart people. And I mean, there was just so much with that that adjustment, right? And that transition. I don't think that really the school I came from prepared me for college much at all. I don't think I really knew how to learn. I knew more how to memorize. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I didn't know how to study. And so it was a lot. And the first semester, oh my gosh, was tough. I got my first C of my life, you know, and it was hard. I can vividly remember leaving the hall where we had the exam and my dad calling him and I was just boohoo crying. And I'm like, I don't think I'm cut out for this. You know, I'm sorry to, you know, again, all that pressure of, I know that this was a big deal for me to go to college. I, maybe I should have chosen a different college. And my dad is just encouraging me like, no, Ashley, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I really think about their perspective too, right? They didn't know what I was going through or what to to tell me or how to encourage me. I remember being working, like studying late at night, right? Like in our, we called it the the PCL. It was our library at UT, the, one of the main ones. And I'd be there like midnight, 1am and I'd call my mom leaving, you know, and, and she would say, Ashley, what's going on? Like, are you not doing well in school because you're studying so late? And I was like, no mom, everyone's studying. Like it's, it's full. It's not just me. And so they just couldn't relate. They thought something must be wrong, you know? So anyway, my dad definitely encouraged me in that moment. And I mean, what I realized I had way too much of a workload that first 
semester, I was taking geology, calculus, Italian, a crazy history class. And the thing is, and I know I'm, I'm going in, <laughs> I have so much to share. But the thing is, I was bored in high school because again, my high school wasn't really challenging in a lot of ways. And so I took a lot of college credits. So I actually came into college with 31 college credit. So I was technically a sophomore in my friend. I was, like I said, bored. I had a job. I was taking college classes at a junior college and I was making sure all of them could transfer. But that did not, it was tough again, because now here I am, I've taken so much of the basic coursework already. I'm a freshman. So I'm, they threw me into these really rigorous classes. If I knew then what I know now, I would not have loaded it up with so many intense classes from the very beginning. But that led to, like I said, I got a C in calculus. I was like, what is this? What is happening? And it really was a big, you know, my identity was almost being shaken because I was this smart kid. And all of a sudden I didn't feel like I was that anymore. And really having to dig deep and know, you know, that I could keep going and I had, it was up to me. It was my choice. And like I said, as I got closer to my business classes, it was the opposite. I mean, it came to me so naturally. So it was really just having to kind of push past those initial classes to get in my groove. And then I really soared. So what did you like about your business classes? What? Did, how did you know this is my jam? Like I'm actually not just surviving this, but I'm thriving here. You know, I wanted to be a businesswoman, you know, coming out of high school, but I don't really think I knew what that meant. I think I thought that was like, I'll carry a briefcase and wear a suit and go into boardrooms and like make stuff happen. I don't know, you know, but there was something in me, even as a kid, I was the kid who was like charging my friend's moms, like when they would come pick them up at a sleepover because we had like a performance. And so everyone's gonna have to pay us $5 for our performance. You know, I was always selling jewelry and stuff like that. So I was always kind of interested in, in, I guess, commerce and making money and, and providing a service and getting paid for it, that kind of thing. So I wanted to do business, but I mean, my classes just resonated with me. It was like, right. You know, for example, I remember stats was a class that I really enjoyed. And I had other friends who were like, what the heck? Like that is not what? And I know stats was hard, but it it's like, it clicked. I got it as opposed to calculus where I was like, what is happening? What tangent of line? What, who, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. So it was just like the, the coursework. It just, it just hit. And I was like, okay, this is right. This is my groove. I love that. And I can relate in so many ways. As as a middle schooler, I used to bring Mexican candy and then sell it on the side. And then at the end of the week, calculate my profits. And that's sort of how I learned too, that I loved business and that that's why I'm where I am today. But I want to dig in a little bit deeper. Where do you think this mindset of hustling and making money comes from for you? That's a great question. I would say my parents, really, both of them. My dad has always been such a hard worker. Even like at a young age, he would instill principles of saving. You know, we'd get our allowance and things, and he would tell us, well, you could save it or you could spend it and show us those principles. He even he invested in the stock market. So he would have me print out his different stocks and show the returns. Did it go up or down? And I thought it was like a cute, fun thing. I would like sign my name and be like, I love you, dad. But I think it was instilling something in me for the markets and for how all of that work. And I don't know if it's just, if it's like, I don't know if it's learned or if I was, if, if I was born with it, right? Maybe there's some mixture. I have a younger sister and she is incredible in so many ways, but that's not really her jam. So it's like, we're, we're, we're blood, right? Blood relatives, but we just, we operate differently in that. Like I said, even when I was on in New York, you know, you've heard of what it's like to be on Wall Street. You've seen the movies and it's not too different from what you see in the movies. But like, I, you know, I like that environment. Yeah, I liked being up late at the office 
purpose and working hard. I mean, not every single night, right? But it, it there was something in it that was driving me, I guess, until it wasn't, until there was a fulfillment piece that was missing. So I guess hustle was just something that was kind of in me, but also reinforced by my parents. My mom was all about excellence, doing everything in excellence. I mean, when it came to homework, for example, if it wasn't perfect, I had to redo it, start over from the beginning. There was no smudges allowed on my homework and that sort of thing. So I think that I was just wired that way. No, and it sounds like both of your parents play their own very critical roles in allowing you to thrive in this entrepreneurial mindset. I can only imagine you sitting there looking at the returns of stocks and saying, hey, dad, we made $5 here and there. And you know, like, that's such a cool thing. So then and maybe this helped to influence what you did after UT, because then you did decide, let me go work as an investment banker. So tell us a little bit about that. Do you think that you as a 10, 15 year old, looking at the returns influence that trajectory in your career? That is a great question. And I would say, I think it did, but like subconsciously. When I went to college, in my mind, I was going to work for, you know, in, in corporate America. I wanted to be a CFO is what I would always say. So I wasn't looking to go into, you know, investment banking at all, even in, in terms of what I did in my summers. Because typically, if you want to be work on an investment banking, you need to have an investment banking internship. Well, your girl was studying abroad a lot. I lived in Milan, Italy for six months. My, I guess it was my sophomore year and I loved it. And then the next summer when I could have, again, had a fancy investment banking internship, I instead was working in Ghana in West Africa on a social development project with microfinance agencies. So I had this really different route. And to me, I love culture and I'd heard the importance of studying abroad before I ever went to college. I can't remember who sowed that seed in my mind, but when I went to college, especially because I had so many credit hours already, I could study abroad very easily. So it's something I really prioritize. And for me, it was probably the best thing I did in my college experience. So I always encourage students if they can to to take that opportunity because it's something that is very unique to college in a sense, unless you do an MBA program. But you know, there's no real opportunity to travel like that and, and live in a different place that works with kind of your goals and career. So anyway, I did that. So I had a very different route. And I remember after coming back from Ghana, I was in this financial analyst program at, at UT and it was a small group of students who were selected to be in the the, the program and everyone was coming back saying what they did that summer. And I was hearing my colleagues say, you know, they were working at this investment bank and it was terrible. They were cussed out and it was like they never slept and it was just awful. Yeah, all of that, but they were going back. They had accepted the offer and it just blew my mind. Like you're saying it was so bad, but you accept it. I wonder why. But I was just like, okay, I'm just going to kind of figure it out because I had traveled. So I did not have a job lined up, which was scary, right? This is my last semester. I was graduating a semester early because again, I had I had so much coursework coming coming in that was already taken care of. So I had to make a decision. I was like, I'm going to bust my butt getting a job because for me, the whole point of college, you got to get a job, right? So I hit the ground running. I I don't even, I can't tell you how many interviews I, I had that semester. I remember my professors like apologizing to them for missing tests and, and presentations because I was on these interviews flying all over the country. But I ended up getting several offers. A few were with Deloitte and Accenture um, here in Houston, JP Morgan's Wealth Management Group. And then last minute was New York, the offer to go to New York and work on, on Wall Street and investment banking. And again, I knew I wasn't qualified. So I 
literally took the in- interview as like a, I was like, this is like a trip to New York. You know, they're going to put me up in the Rockefeller Center and I'll get to see New York for the first time. Great. Cause there's no way I'm getting this job, but it's just fine. You know, but when I went into the interview, my resume was so different. I was so unique. I was a, a diverse, you know, applicant. And I think that played to my strengths in a huge way. I remember those interviews. And by this time, I was just so cool with interviews. I loved it. It was like a conversation, right? So I'm just sharing my experiences, talking to what I'd done while I was in college and they loved it, you know, and that was happening throughout all of my interviews, but particularly this one, because as you can imagine, all of the recruiters are hearing the same stories for the most part, right? I had this internship and I had this awesome GPA. Well, mine was different. And so anyway, I got the job and it was a huge shock to me. And I ultimately chose it because I said of all of my offers, I felt like the investment banking opportunity was the most challenging for me. And I could more easily go from investment banking to any of the others as opposed to vice versa. I mean, I was young. I wanted wanted to live in New York City. So it was like, I'm going to do it. And I took a huge leap of faith, move out, out there. And like I said, it was ultimately an incredible experience. But it was similar in the fact that, or in the sense that I did not know what I was doing when I got there. I didn't know anyone who lived in New York. I didn't know where to live. I didn't know how all the things worked in investment banking, all of the jargon, all of the systems that most of my analyst class knew very well because they either interned there at Barclays or at another investment bank. I had no clue. So it was a very steep learning curve on top of the already steep learning curve of investment banking. But it was like very similar to my college experience where it was rough in the beginning, but I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. And I think that drive that we have, I think especially as first-generation college students, propelled me to keep going. I have people who, who who care and are looking and who I'm carrying kind of my family on my back in this way. And that was empowering to me. Yeah, I can only imagine this interview of this excellent candidate in front of me. Of, and like you mentioned, investment bankers are a very monolithic type of group. And you had done all this cool internships. You had been in Milan. You have been doing financial development. I mean, what a cool candidate. I'm sure everybody was happy to have a conversation that was extremely different. So I I think that's a good plug for reminding our first generation college students to have cool opportunities that they're interested in. Because if you are interested in in those opportunities, it's just so much easier to talk about them while you're interviewing. But then I want to kind of fast forward here. So you got this job. And of course, as you mentioned, like first gens, we're going to figure it out, we're going to get good at it. But then it turned out that even though you were excelling at it, you might have not been as happiest as you could have been. So tell me, how did you realize that, man, maybe it's not that all these variables are moving. It could just be that I'm not fulfilled doing what I'm doing. Oh yeah. Whew, that was that was a tough one for me. So, like I said, I came in despite having no experience. They put me as the only analyst in two groups, which is very rare. Usually there are multiple analysts in a group and usually you're just in one group while I was in two. It was wild. It was like what? I was like why me? But like I said, one foot in front of the other, grew and grew and grew, got to a point to where, so an investment banking analyst program is two years. And the idea is you go for two years and if you are selected or you know asked, 
podcast, you're, you get the opportunity to stay on for a third year and then eventually become an associate and kind of work your way up. Well, this year in particular, there were few third year offers given out because of the market and such, but I was given the opportunity to stay on a third year. Like I said, I had just like bust my butt and work my way to, to doing well in my analyst class. So I had the third year offer and this is this was the defining moment. I was on this huge $4 billion IPO and I was the only analyst in the US working on the deal. I was working with London and Spain and Mexico. It was a, a cross-border deal. It was a big like landmark transaction for the firm. And I remember having this ceremony for the like at Barclays because they were wanting to congratulate the team for landing the deal. And I remember all of my other analyst colleagues coming up to me and saying, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Like you should just feel so happy that you were doing this cross-border deal, blah, blah, blah. And girl, I was like, no, this is not awesome. (laughs) And I was like, I should be excited. I should feel how they feel about this, but I don't. And see, for me, my hair was falling out. I had like this random white spot on my stomach because I wasn't taking care of myself. Like it was just like random stuff was happening to my body and my mind. I mean, it was wild. And even outside of that, it was just hard for me to connect all the hard work I was doing to actual impact, you know? Like I worked in equity, so I was helping companies IPO, right? And in other equity offerings. And I would try to tell myself, well, if this company IPOs, they can expand and grow and there's gonna like make more jobs for people. You know, I'm trying to like find a way to make it mean something to me, but it just wasn't direct enough. I didn't feel at the end of the day like what I was doing mattered. And that was when I I really had that aha moment. And so what I did is I just wrote a list. It was this random list of things that I would do if no one paid me, that when I do these things, I can go hours and hours without even realizing it because I just, I'm in it and I'm in like a flow state and I love it. And the list was so random. It was like, I like helping people with productivity. I like logistics. Also stuff like, I like dancing. I could dance forever. I like playing volleyball. Just stuff that really, you know, sparked joy in me and in my life. And I kind of just wrote it out. It didn't make any sense when you looked at it. I just put it up on my my screen at my, <laughs> at my desk, which was a little bold, you know, to just do that on a trade floor setting where everyone can see it. But like, here's my random list of things that bring me joy. (laughs) And I think I sort of meditated on it, but not intentionally. I just kind of stuck it up there, but it was always kind of in my peripheral. And one day it hit me, oh my goodness, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I had never had that desire, you know? And the problem was, well, what do I do? Like, I don't, have a thing like a restaurant or a hair salon or a juice bar. You know, I didn't know what that was. I just knew I wanted to help a business run. I wanted to run the behind the scenes. And so it took a process, but long story short, I made the decision to leave. And my goal was to help my mom actually launch a tea room. She was obsessed with tea, teapots. I was always getting her tea from all over the world and she wanted to have a tea room. And so we were going to do that. That ended up not working out. And I ended up launching the league with my husband, but I mean, that process of leaving that job was hard. I mean, I was young, but it was the hardest decision I'd ever made in my entire life because I was making six figures. I had this third year offer. Girl, whenever I went there, my whole goal was to be able to work in one of the international offices because clearly I love traveling. And I had that opportunity because I was saying it at every performance review. Hey, whenever the opportunity comes, I want to work in either the London office or the Hong Kong office. And they had given me that they said, okay, yeah, you can go in your third year. And so it was like set up and I was living in New York. I mean, it was like, why would I go back home to help my mom start a business? I don't know if if this is going to really work. And I was having to also tell my director who I had worked very closely with and who we really kind of, we worked on this big $4 billion IPO together 
that I was going to be leaving. And I mean, I felt like I was going back on my word, all of that. But ultimately I had to do what I knew was right for me. And I knew that I wanted to start really sowing my roots somewhere and that New York or London or Hong Kong was not where, what that was for me. And so I had to make the really hard decision. And thankfully I was, God blessed me with people like bosses who were so encouraging and supportive. I mean, my director even looked at my business plan for the league, you know, like she was amazing. So I'm very grateful I had that support because that is not normal in that environment of investment making or Wall Street. So it was a blessing. For sure. And I just, I, I love your story for a couple of reasons. The first part is because in many ways and in many people's eyes, you quote unquote, had made it, right? Everything we ever dream about, the big job, the big salary, like this is why you went to college. This is the career that so many people strive for. And yet you took that very important time to reflect and make that list. Yeah, so you wrote this list and I'm wondering where you got this idea that it was important for you to write this list of things that you would do regardless of whether or not you got paid for them. Yes. So I think for me, I was really having to be very self-aware and understanding where I was, what I really wanted to do, what really mattered to me. And I think that is just a practice that I had kind of gotten into of really reflecting and being self-aware and even listening to my body. How do I feel in these moments? Right. And I think it's just so important in life as a life principle to check in with yourself on that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I think it was more of just like a journaling prompt, you know, almost. I sat down and I was just frustrated because I didn't know what would bring me that happiness or fulfillment. And so I started to just write. And I, and that's what that's where the list came from. I just wrote these things that brought me real happiness that I really enjoyed doing. And it was a little frustrating when I looked at the list and it didn't make a whole lot of sense. It was a bunch of random things that didn't feel like there was a any connection to it. You know, I couldn't draw the line anywhere. But like I said, after kind of meditating on it, putting it in on my computer screen and just having it front of mind, top of mind in a way, kind of subconsciously, obviously, as I'm working and such, it began to like mesh in my head. Like, okay, I like, I like systems. I like strategy. I like making things happen. I don't have a thing, but I want to help someone's thing come to life. And so that's how I led to myself to entrepreneurship. So originally you were going to begin this tea room. I hope you are a tea drinker because I'm guessing that's what you were going to do. And then it turned out that that idea didn't actually come to life. So tell me, how did you all decide to begin the league and ultimately Bird Williams Consulting? Sure. So Actually, I'm not a tea drinker, so I had to do a lot of research. It was really my mom's heart. And so again, even just to you know resonate with first-gen college students, I mean, I know that so much of my success is because of the sacrifices that my parents have made 100%, them putting me in places, giving me exposure, even though they didn't understand it. I mean, they would send me to camps in DC, like, you know, to help expose me to things, even though they'd never been in DC, they didn't really know what they were, they were sending their daughter. I mean, of course, it was safe and everything, but they sacrificed money and all of that to, to expose me. So I wanted to, and I still want to in every way that I can, like show them love, pay them back. I know I can never actually pay them back, but, and that's, I think had a lot to do with my motivation around the tea room. She's always been obsessed with tea, like I said. So I was like, we could make this into a business. I can run it. And she's a great cook. She can cook all the little pastries. And I had to learn about tea. So even while I had my job in New York, I took a weekend off to go to Las Vegas and go to the World Tea Expo. I was having a learn and all that. How cool is that though? I mean, I'm a tea drinker, so 
I am excited for one day going to a tea room here in Houston, Texas. Yes. Oh my gosh. It was, I learned so much. I didn't know that there was so much that went into tea. So anyway, I went through that whole process. I was looking to get investors. I mean, I was ready to go. So what happened was, okay, that was my reason I was leaving. I communicated that to my bosses. You know, I planned to come back home. I had actually just started dating my boyfriend again because the college sweetheart that I told you, we launched the, the league together, my husband, Terry, we'd broken up when I went to New York. And that was a tough one for me. He was my very first boyfriend. And he was just kind of like, okay, you're going to New York, even though you have these offers in Houston, and you are saying you might go to London or Hong Kong after that to work in one of the international offices, you're never going to just be in one place. And I, and so he broke up with me and it was devastating. (laughs) Oh no, but luckily y'all got back together. So Yeah, we get back together. It all works out in the end. But anyway, we got back together during that time and I was moving to Houston. We got married again. I'm kind of, I kind of put things on pause a little bit as I was preparing the wedding and moving down to Houston. But that was my whole plan. Girl, one day after, after the wedding, but I should point that out. My mom sits down with me and she's like, you know what? I really want your dad to be more involved in the business and he's not ready to retire yet. So I think we should just wait on it. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? I left my job. Are you? I I freaked out, and I'm not even a freak outer, you know. And it was just hard for me because I felt like I didn't have any purpose. I didn't know what I was gonna do. I didn't have a job. I was newly married, and for me, I did not. I do not assume the role of like staying home as a as a mom or as a wife. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just that was not my 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 jam. So I was in this weird weird place. I think I was probably pretty depressed now looking back on it, but. I basically started working with um, like startup companies. One was in in Austin, so I was like traveling to Austin a lot. One was here in Houston, and that kind of helped really shape my understanding of systems and how small businesses work before I launched my own. But it came to a point to where my husband Terry, who you know I own the league with, he was crushing it in the fitness game here in Houston. He was training at like seven different. Sp- places all over Houston, Houston, River Oaks Country Club, um, the Houstonian, all these different places. And I was like, instead of you doing all that and running all over the, the world, you should come to, or we should have our own facility where you can bring all of your clients to. And uh, he was like, are you kidding me? I was 25. He was 27. We were super young. And I just basically did a business model. I, I showed him like, hey, look, this is what could come in. This is what goes out. Look, we can actually make money. Like this can actually work. And so in December of 2012, we built started building our business plan. And then that next year, it took us about a year because in December, 2013 is when we actually launched before that it was getting investors, you know, finding a space, getting equipment, figuring all that out. It was a crazy (laughs) roller coaster ride, but we launched our gym December 1st, 2013. Well, congratulations. And just so our audience knows, Terry, your husband it's not just training anybody. He trained like Olympian winners and Olympian medalists and elite trainers, right? So, I mean, he really did have a following. So you were able to draw that financial model, I guess, based on who he is. Is that right? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. He was not only training professional athletes, like you said, Olympians, but also professional like football, NFL. He works with a lot of MMA fighters. I actually just trained with him in a UFC fighter at our house the other day. Yeah, it was pretty neat. And this guy's like a friend of ours, but it's like, I have to remind myself, he's a UFC fighter. He's about to get in the cage and fight someone. And I'm over here working out with him, puffing and puffing. But no, yeah. So he not only trained elite athletes, but he also was so generous. So in terms of like what he would share on social media, then Twitter was really big. And so there was no Instagram, I don't think. So he was just sharing so much information on Instagram. So he began to build this great following of people. So when we got ready to launch the league, I mean, our launch party, people were coming 
from Dallas and San Antonio. And I mean, we had hundreds of people there, which was great for the optics of our new business and all of that. So that was a a huge blessing. I could not have done any of that without Terry. And even with building the business model, he knew how much towels were going to cost and how much we could get equipment, where to get the best equipment. So all those inputs into the model, he was very integral in, in making that happen. No, that that sounds like a great partnership. And I don't know that I could start a business with my husband, but it works for both of you. So I want to pivot a little bit to your project that you're focused on right now, which is the Bird Williams Consulting. And I am wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you do there. And then maybe if you knew that there were already competitors in the market, why you still decided to launch this. The league, like I said, we launched in 2013. Here we are seven years later. So last year in 2019, we it was like a well-oiled machine, meaning we have you know several employees who we don't call employees. We call them our team because they're a part of making the whole thing happen. We love them so much. They're amazing. But the, the league operates on its own. Terry or I don't have to be there unless Terry wants to you know coach classes. He does coach classes, obviously, or if I need to just kind of stop by. So I, I had the capacity to help in an even greater way. And what, what that looked like for me, people were coming to me all the time. Hey, I have this business idea. Can you help me think through it? And I was just giving advice and I loved it. It's again, one of those moments where I checked in with myself and I was like, this fires me up. Like I love doing this. It's one of those things that if I had to do a list today, I would write it on there. I love helping people strategize around their business. So it got to the point where I was helping so many people just for free that my husband was like, hey, you got to make this into an official business because you're up late at night working on this stuff. Like, go ahead and you know make it official, which is funny because we kind of flipped roles. I helped him do that with the league. And then now here he is helping me do it with the consulting firm. So that's what I did. In November of 2019, I launched and it took off a lot faster than I thought it would. It has been wild. I mean, we're only, you know, I guess we're what, nine months in? I don't even know. Time is weird with with COVID. (laughs) But here we are. And I mean, so much has changed. So what I do is I I help entrepreneurs launch and grow their businesses. And I am basically the resource that I wish I had when I launched the league back in 2013. Because girl, I was re- I was Googling everything. I didn't know, I didn't have confidence in a lot of what I was doing. I had no roadmap or path. No one who could kind of tell me, hey, watch out for this. Hey, make sure you get a CPA from the beginning. You know, an att- attorney is important. I know it's expensive, but do it. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And so I am now able to do that for entrepreneurs. I have strategy sessions where you can just book a one hour session with me where we kind of talk through your specific pain points in your business or as you're preparing to launch. And then there's like a 30 minute follow-up session that goes with that. Or alternatively, I have a signature program, which is my business plan framework. And why it's so important to me having a solid business plan, it's because you prove your idea to yourself. And like I said, I had my director in New York, my Wall Street director, look at our business plan for the league before we got ready to launch. Because to me, that was like, I needed to vet it very heavily. And I knew she'd have great insights. And so she was like, you should tighten up the financials here and you should think about this. And we launched in December, like I said, of 2013. 2014, we had six figures in revenue. And that's not something we planned on. That was way beyond what we thought we would do. And it's... I. 
strongly believe because us vetting a solid business plan, us knowing what we were doing and what we were working toward and not just randomly doing stuff, right? So I now, I use that framework and and obviously have honed it over the years. And I show entrepreneurs how to develop a profitable business plan and then how to review it quarterly and make sure that you are covering all of your bases. And it's covering everything from, my four pillars are foundation, which is so key and important. It's what a lot of people miss. Your financial, which is obviously very important. You got to make the money make sense operations, which a lot of people look over, but it's it's really important in terms of scaling your business eventually and kind of thinking of scale in mind as like a long-term thing, but then also making it to where you're less stressed day in and day out because you have systems and you are automating things in your business. And then finally marketing. And I leave that one to the end because so many people like marketing. When people come to me with business ideas, it's actually, I have a logo and I have my business cards and my website and my cute little you know Instagram. <laughs> and I'm like, that's all great and so important, but you have to have a solid foundation before you start bringing all these people into your 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 product or service, you want to make sure that it, it's well functioning and that the money works and makes sense and all that. So those are my four pillars. It's a five week program and it's a lot of fun. I I really just love what I get to do. I mean, I'm in these strategy sessions or in these business plan sessions, and I'm like watching my clients have these aha moments where you can almost see a light bulb go off in their head, and they're like oh, that's going to have to change. Or, oh, I didn't realize it worked like this. And I'm like, man, had I had something like this, this kind of resource when I started, man, I would have avoided so much wasted time and money and energy and all of that. So yeah, I love what I get to do. So what I hear is that you help entrepreneurs make calculated risks because being an entrepreneur is a lot of fun, but there's a lot of risks that are not risks that are worth taking. And you kind of help them sort out, you know what, this might be one of those risks you want to take, or you know what, this might be a risk that you're better off thinking once or twice before you jump in. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. It's because people don't think about it that way. I love how you phrased it. People kind of have ideas in their head of what they think their business will be and they don't actually put it on paper. They don't actually talk it out. They don't actually vet it. I'll give you an example. I had a strategy session recently and it was focused on the financial piece and the young lady has this amazing business idea. And when we did the, when we looked at the numbers, she began to see, oh my goodness, I'm going to bleed money for years, literally years. If I launch with the capacity that I planned on. She had planned on like a limited number of business offerings. And she's like, I have to double my business offerings in order to make this thing work. And it was like, yeah, because you can see it now because you can see it on paper. You know, you're really going through the process of, of developing this plan. And so can you imagine had she gone out and just started buying equipment and get all the stuff together and doing all the things and launched her business and then a few months in been like, why isn't this working? You know, right. So, yes, I help I help them. I help entrepreneurs navigate that that journey. So would you say that you were fulfilling a gap in the market with something you're passionate with? Or when you were doing your market research, were there other people doing it? And if so, how is your product or the services you offer any different? That's a great question. I forgot to answer that earlier. So yes and no. I have a very different philosophy as it relates to kind of thinking about competitors. So when I launched Bird Williams Consulting, I wasn't trying to think, I wasn't, I didn't go out and look at what other consultants were doing. What I did do was kind of analyze the market as a whole, which of course has some competitive analysis in there. And I found gaps to where, where could I fit? Where do I fit best? And if I'm completely honest, 
I just knew there was demand because it was happening already. Like people were already coming to me. So I knew that there was a need to be solved. And so when it comes to competition, I encourage people, of course, you want to know where the competition is. That's important, but don't focus there because you have your own secret sauce. There's a unique value position proposition that you offer. And so really focus on that, right? So yes, there are so many different consultants out there, strategists out there, business coaches out there. I could not tell you who my closest competitor is or what they do or how they structure their services. I'm not focused there. I just know that this is something that people need. And as I've exposed myself to the market, I don't see it anywhere that looks like this. And so I think, okay, yes, this is this is gonna, gonna be great and really just serve and help people. I really like that because you're both filling in a gap, obviously, but you're obviously super excited to wake up in the mornings and do this. So let me ask you, now that COVID's happened, and obviously a lot that's changed a lot of our lives, and I'm sure it's changed a lot of your projections, but how do you think about success? Obviously, there's the number part of it, the profit part of it, but how at the end of the day, when you go back to sleep and you think, wow, today I did something that I consider successful, what goes through your mind? I think it's as simple as, did I love people well today? Did I serve someone? Did I do something for someone that's much greater than me and my own needs, right? That's what success is to me. Another thing I would say is that success isn't the end result. So success isn't having a six-figure business or, you know, whatever this long-term kind of big goal is, success is actually the process because I could have a six-figure business tomorrow and then destroy it, right? I could have a six-figure business tomorrow and not know how to manage it because it just happened so quickly. And then I just literally destroy it, right? Or I could take time and work through the kinks and get in the messy, it's called the messy middle, you know, I could work through it. That is actually the success. The success happens along the way because you're building your character, you're building your power, your strength so that you could actually sustain what it is you're working toward. You know, what would happen if your wildest dreams happen tomorrow? Are you really ready for that? It's like, I don't think people realize that the success is in the process. So that's how I look at success. So when I'm sitting down and I'm like so frustrated because I'm hitting a, a barrier kind of in my business or something that I really don't like to have to do. I say, actually, like you're, you're, you're hitting this barrier because you're going to make a system around it. That's going to make it to where when your business is happy, you know, there's three times as much volume coming in. You don't have to worry about it anymore. If you didn't have to work through this, then you would never get there. Right. So yeah, to me, success is just loving people well, living and working towards something much bigger than me. And then also understanding that it's in the process. So the journey might be just as important and it may be even more important given what you said than the actual outcome at the end of the day. And I really appreciate that as somebody who obviously thinks that the journey, whether it be to get to college, to graduate or to begin a new business matters a lot. So what do you hope your legacy as a first gen entrepreneur will be? Ooh, that's a great question. I think it would tie into what I said um, in terms of my success response. Just, I would want my legacy to be a legacy of generosity. I'd want people to, when they interact with me or my products or services, leave better, you know, leave improved, leave refreshed. I think that, you know, to sum it up would be my legacy. And I mean, I just even think about, you know, as a first gen college student, you know, what we do as a legacy for our our bigger family, right? I don't think I mentioned this, but when I graduated from high school, I was valedictorian. So I spoke at my college graduation. Well, then at college, I was actually 
selected to be the student speaker for graduation. And it was this beautiful moment where I didn't tell anybody at all, only my mom. And my both of my grandparents were there, my grandmothers, my whole family. It was a huge thing. I remember when they announced me, my family yelled so loud that the dean like laughed and was like, we know where Ashley's family is, but they didn't know that I was going to be the student speaker. And, I, and to be able to give them that moment and to be able to like salute them and bow to them and say, thank you for what you sacrificed to let me be on this stage. I felt like they were on the stage with me. So when you think about your legacy, I, I think, you know, of course it's, it's something much bigger than you. And yeah, I'd want people to say, you know, when I, when I left Ashley's presence, I was better. I was refreshed. Um, I was, something was added to my life. That moment to me sounds beautiful. And just to share with you too, one of the happiest, if not the happiest moment of my life was when I graduated from Harvard and I got the Women Leadership Award. And I actually brought my mom on stage and I gave my mom the award because to me, everything that I know and understand about leadership comes from my mom who has, as you mentioned, sacrificed so much in the shoulders that I stand on. So I can definitely relate to that moment where you realize, you know what, this is no longer about me. It stopped being about me a long, long time ago. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I can only imagine what that meant for your mom, you know, even having two little boys. Gosh, that's just, I can imagine that being such a special moment. Yeah, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. But my last question is, what tips do you have for any first gens that are listening to this that are thinking, maybe I want to follow Ashley's footsteps. Maybe I'm ready to leave my 9 to 5, 9 to 9 p.m. in my case, and begin something new. To those first gens, especially if you're still in college, I would say don't forsake your network and you know the people who are around you, right? Because when we launched the gym, I mean, there were influential people that helped us do that who were, you know, that we, we met at college, right? College friends of ours. One, for example, her name is Nayla Cantu. She worked for a local news station. And so, I mean, she's like, family to us now, but you know, we, we, we didn't know we weren't the best of friends, but we did connect with her in college. And then she was able to get us on KHOU and all these different opportunities just because of, just because we, she knew us. So don't forsake your network. Like make sure that even if it's not comfortable for you, I can honestly say I'm an introvert. I get my energy from being alone, but I forced myself And the business school at UT was really good at providing networking opportunities for us. And so I just would say, Ashley, look at, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror, get yourself together, go out there talk to these people, shake hands. And, and the more you do it, the easier it becomes. So yeah, that would be my one of my biggest pieces of advice. And then if you want to become an entrepreneur, I would say, you know, just check in with yourself. Like I said, what is it that you really want to do? What is it that you would do if you didn't get any credit for it? That's another big one, right? Because a lot of people view entrepreneurship as super sexy. Like I'm hashtag CEO. I'm a boss. Let's go. Got my, you know, Ferrari or whatever. No, you will be cleaning toilets and filling in holes in walls and you know, all kinds of crazy things. So you have to actually want it. You have to actually love what it is you're doing because it's going to be a lot of work, especially in the beginning. So those would be my two pieces of advice. Ashley, you have been so wonderful and so generous with your time. Are you open to being contacted if our audience has any questions? And if so, where can they find you? Absolutely. Two ways. Instagram. I'm at Bird Williams Consulting. Definitely jump on there. Shoot me a DM if you have any questions. I love, as you can probably tell, <laughs> chatting through all of these things. And you could also just shoot me an email. It's hello at birdwilliamsconsulting.com. Perfect. Well, Ashley, thank you so, so much. I loved this conversation and we loved having you on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here. It really was a true honor. Well, that's it, folks. 
I hope that you enjoyed this phenomenal conversation with Bird as she talked about the pressures of being a first-generation college student, how her parents influenced her entrepreneurship mind, and how she risked a lot of things in her life to follow her dream and be really excited to wake up in the mornings to do her calling and what she was meant to do. I hope that all of you through your journeys are asking yourselves those difficult questions because being a first gen is really hard. And I think that when we get to places, oftentimes we just think this is everything I worked for, but it's so important to do that gut check that Bird talked about to always be in tune with yourself on, am I happy? Am I doing what I was born to do? And to me, that is such a beautiful question that I think all of us continuously have to ask ourselves. So in the words of Bird, I hope that you all continue to put one foot in front of the other and that that drive that you have as a first gen propels you to keep on going forward. Until next time.